This is Missing Persons Uncovered, where we uncover the depth and complexities of this global issue. Every year, millions of people go missing worldwide. I'm Caroline Humer, a global child protection expert. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green, a researcher specializing in missing persons at the University of Portsmouth, UK. Across this series, we hope to raise awareness of this issue, discuss how societies can support vulnerable people better, and give you insights into how you can protect your community and family. As we explore previously in this series, the examples presented of missing persons in the world of film and TV are rare in real life. So today we look at the process of an investigation, who is involved, what resources are needed, and the importance of adapting as facts and situations change. Carlos Skippers is a retired detective superintendent and behavioral consultant with the Dutch National Police with over 30 years of investigative experience in searching for missing persons. We can ask the army to join us with with lots of soldiers to come and help us seeking in the woods, for instance. But there's also all kinds of equipment that we can use. Uh, A plane, a police helicopter can help search for the missing person. We have got dogs. You can get officers on horseback because they can cover more territory. You're basically limited by your own imagination when it comes to looking for the missing person. Every missing person case is different. And in this episode, Carlo describes the various decisions needed to be made, resources and challenges that come into play in an investigation. Carlo's work in the Netherlands came from a rather unique starting point that we were keen to explore in this episode. In the 1990s, he noticed that a number of homicide investigations actually started out as missing person cases. He spoke to Caroline about that. My colleague at the time and myself realized that maybe what was done wasn't always optimal because the missing person aspect seemed to get less attention and less intense of an investigation than when you would know right away that somebody had actually been murdered. And so that, to make a long story short, triggered us to set up some research into the numbers of missing people, how many people actually went missing every year in the early 90s, uh, what were the reasons that they were missing And how long would they stay missing? How many of them would come back alive and well? And how many would not? And based on all that and all the knowledge that we gained by looking into this, I started to get involved in missing person cases more and more and more. And linked to that is activities that I developed in the early 2000s already in setting up an Amber Alert system for the Dutch police together with a company that helped us with that. And another thing that I was involved in is keeping in touch with not everybody, because that would, of course, be impossible, but with people who are left behind by missing people, which is also really important in learning more about what happens to those people and what kind of problems and issues they have to deal with if a loved one has disappeared from their lives. So in your experience, is that the start of the investigation when someone's made the report? 
Yeah, when family or a loved one or anyone reports to police that somebody is missing, if you make it like a black and white situation, we really don't know anything. The person is missing. That's the information. And anything could have happened. It could be a crime. It doesn't have to be. So the first thing you have to do is show professional curiosity, which is very natural to police officers. They always want to know what's going on, what's happened, what am I dealing with? And so starting the communication with whoever makes that report is the first step to getting more information about what could possibly have happened. And you take it from there, and sometimes it becomes obvious very quickly what the motive or the scenario is of what you're dealing with. Sometimes it could take you a longer time. And obviously, I can give you examples of cases where somebody has been missing for maybe dozens of years, and we still don't know why that happened, why somebody has gone missing or what has happened to him or her. But it's essential that in those early stages, we ask the right questions, we're inquisitive, we want to know and find out what the potential scenario is, and you take it from there. That's something also you or my colleague, Charlie, had just talked about in the last episode about reporting and the importance of reporting as soon as someone believes someone is sort of missing or doesn't know where they're supposed to be. And in a lot of our trainings that we've done, we keep talking about the golden hour or the first three hours are really the most critical because research has said that if you wait too long, after 48 hours, the likelihood of finding someone, the percentage drastically minimizes from the initial aspect. So what is that three hours or that golden hour that we're talking about? What needs to happen in those golden hours? The number of hours really isn't that important as long as you realize that in any missing person case, in any disappearance, time is of the essence. So the sooner you know something the sooner you can establish some kind of thought or idea what has happened, the better it is. For obvious reasons, first of all, the victim may be in a dangerous situation, so you don't want to waste any time in trying to find them and help them, maybe get the medical attention. Another aspect is, and it doesn't even matter whether it's a crime or not, but if there's any indications of what happened in the sense of trace evidence or statements from people who may or may not have seen something, those can be become less easy to obtain or even completely disappear if you waste a lot of time. So if you say, okay, well, I'll go back tomorrow, some of the, the stuff you may have found if you go right away may have already disappeared. It's like the rain coming in and washing away the footsteps in the sand that you're looking for. And you need to be aware that that time and how much time you have, or maybe better, how much time you don't have, is something that you need to think about as quickly as you can. Sometimes you're not talking hours. Sometimes you're talking minutes or even seconds, because that may be the difference between coming to the scene as a police officer and being able to rescue somebody from the dangerous situation they're in, or being too late. And all you're left with then is a person that has deceased. We've previously spoken about the risk assessment that needs to take place at the beginning of an investigation. Caroline asked Carlo whether this was something only done at the very beginning or an ongoing assessment continually updated throughout the case. No, no, no. I mean, obviously you start at the beginning and the more you learn, the better it is. But the potential scenario of a case can completely change 
at the moment that you talk to somebody who's maybe actually seen something as a witness and gives you a completely different story on what happened than you maybe considered until that moment. So this risk assessment, as you call it, which is basically asking the curious questions all the time and keeping on doing that, uh, that risk assessment needs to be evaluated, which is something that you do in your mind. It's not something that you need to sit down for with a lot of people and a lot of coffee. You just need to be aware of the fact that any incoming information may change what you're dealing with and you have to adjust accordingly. Where do you start in gathering the facts once a report comes in? And who does that? Because it goes from a desk officer to somebody else. Different countries and different police organizations, there will be different procedures, but somebody takes the initial report and will usually hand it over to somebody who's actually going to do something. Obviously, the first steps could be different, but ask the person who actually made the report for further details see if there might be other sources of information when I'm calling them witnesses for lack of a better word, people who would be able to tell you something about the person that's missing, the circumstances that may be at hand and that would shed more light on why somebody is missing or where he or she has gone to or for whatever reason they have gone missing. That's one part of the story. The other one is something that's called the place or the point last seen where is the person actually missing from? And this is something that my Belgian colleague has always emphasized. You need to know as soon as you can what the point of last scene is, because at that location, you may be able to find indications of what happened. And so that's sort of a parallel process. You need to have somebody go there and try and find that location. Maybe people can tell you about it, then it's easy Otherwise, you have to try and determine where that was. So you can actually geographically go there and visit that location and see with your own eyes, what does this look like? What may have happened? Is there anything left that would tell us something, that would give us some information, that would help us in trying to determine what happened? Just stupid example, maybe, but if you're on a road somewhere and you see these heavy rubber tire tracks of a car that went speeding off, Obviously, that could be important information when it comes to the question, what has happened to the missing person? Well, maybe he was picked up, put in the trunk of the car, and the car sped away at considerable speed. Well, that would tell you that maybe a crime is going on at that point and also would tell you that the person who is missing might be in danger because why else would you be dragged off by somebody and put in the trunk of a car? And I think it's also, though, that in today's world, you could look at it as social media, if a person goes missing in a public place, you wonder if people who take pictures for their social media platforms, that they may have captured something that could help in what actually happened. And I know as soon as there is a police presence somewhere, the phone comes out and they start recording, at least in the US. So I think that there is that as well. People taking pictures or videos with mobile phones, of course, is one thing. But another very important factor, especially in residential neighborhoods, if somebody goes missing, are video doorbell systems and other security cameras. Because it is amazing. You can sometimes follow somebody going around a certain neighborhood exactly in the direction of where he or she has disappeared to. Talking about the timeline, I know it's sort of one of the things 
that's sort of frustrating for me sometimes when I talk to people is they go, oh, so, you know, you do the search, you go out, you ask people, have you seen this? You've got a poster of the missing person. And you just assume that you're just going to walk out the street and around the corners and the neighborhoods and that's how you're going to find the person. And we're like, well, no, there's more to it. So with building that timeline, I mean, I know it's probably not linear in building the timeline. So how do you figure the search into the investigation versus the gathering the facts versus the search? It's a lot of stuff that police will do and that will not be necessarily always visible to the general public, which also sometimes gets us some criticism because people think that we're not doing anything while at the same time we're talking to people. We're looking in our own police database systems. The missing person may have a history of troubled behavior or other activities that we, for some reason, have documented and then on the other hand, there's the search, which is usually the very visible aspect of the investigation, which is the, the factual looking for the missing person. And we can do that by sending out officers, sometimes in groups of dozens or more. We can ask the army to join us with lots of soldiers to come and help us seeking in the woods, for instance. Uh, but there's also all kinds of equipment that we can use. A, a plane, a police helicopter can help search for the missing person. We have got dogs. You can get officers on horseback because they can cover more territory. You're basically limited by your own imagination when it comes to looking for the missing person. But it is important to do some investigating before you start searching because just running out of the police station in all directions is not going to help you. You need to determine what would be the most likely area to find the missing person in because you can concentrate your resources in that area. If somebody's missing because they walked out of their front door, got in their car, and drove away, where are you going to be looking for them? There's no real search area because they could be anywhere, depending on the amount of time that has passed since they left home. But on the other hand, if somebody has walked in a certain direction and you may find something that belonged to them on the edge of a wooded area, for instance, then of course you can reason, oh, well, Obviously, he or she went this way. There's woods right in front of me here. Maybe we should search this area because he or she might be here. And then you have a search area and then you can get the troops in to help you. So how do you grow a team for the investigation and how do you determine that growth? If you are assessing the risk, basically assessing the whole situation, hopefully that will give you the information that also helps you determine what you need to use when it comes to resources in order to find the missing person. So if there's a high risk, if it's a young child that's missing, that may have wandered off or may have been taken by somebody else, obviously the response would be completely different than in other scenarios in which potentially an adult, although there's always risk there to be considered also, but in which an adult has wandered off. I mean, a three-year-old is obviously more likely to get in trouble into an accident-like situation than when you can move around on your own legs without any problems. So that all kind of determines where you have to start looking. And from there outward, you have to search and you have to determine what you need for that search. But what I want to add is that you really have to stay with the basics initially because 
for a lot of people, this searching is something magic. We bring out all this stuff and we start searching. But sometimes the missing person cannot be found outside of their home because they are missing from that home. But at the same time, they're still in the home without other people knowing about it. It wouldn't be the first time that police officers go in for a second time or a third time and somewhere hidden away in the attic or in the basement or in some more or less hidden space, they find the missing person who may be alive or not because he or she has hidden away there. What are the basic steps? Certainly searching is one aspect, but what other aspects of the basic would you recommend that needs to be done or should be looked out for before you go into the complexity of a bigger investigation? At the initial beginning, one of the first things I always do is check our systems. Because if there's a history for that particular missing person, whatever is in the system will help you or might help you determine what the present situation is all about. If there's a history that might tell you, has that person gone missing before? Why did it happen? For instance, people who are suffering from dementia, elderly people, they may have a history of going missing and they very often follow sort of the same scenario because that's what's sticking in their mind. They, for instance, want to go back to a home that they used to live in on the other side of town and they'll start walking. And if you know that that's what they've done three times in the recent past, there's a good possibility that this is where they're going to this time. If you're looking at teenagers that run away, especially the ones that do it more often, there's obviously very often a repetition in their behavior that is going to tell you not just where they've gone or where they might have gone, but it might also tell you something about what is the situation that they're running away from? What is actually their motivation to leave home? There might be all kinds of trouble at the home. There may be a situation in which they're being abused or whether they, they feel ignored or not loved or not respected or whatever could be the situation. You can read about it in the system if it has happened before. So let's talk a little bit about how you engage with the family members? How do you talk and how do you work with them to make sure you can get as much information as possible from them to put the puzzle piece together? It's a bit of a cliche, but communication is everything. I mean, you have to connect to these people because they may be emotional, they may be in distress because of the situation, because somebody they love is missing, but they could also have important information for you. So you really need to be able to put them at ease as far as that is possible and talk to them and get the most important information from them because they may know stuff that may really help you determining what is going on or they may have information that may change your mind about what is going on because initially something has not been mentioned if you sit down with the family and it's been going on for just a little bit longer than just the very initial stages they may disclose to you that actually the missing person was suffering from something, a medical condition, a mental condition, trouble at work, financial problems, which in the initial contact, they won't mention because they feel kind of embarrassed or ashamed or they don't want to put the missing person on the spot. So they'll leave out certain information. You'll only get that once you establish a certain rapport with the people that have that information before they actually share it with you. And then 
as the investigation continues, and I'm still in, in the sense of, of hours and days, obviously you need to be in touch with them on a fairly regular basis. You need to keep them informed of what you're doing because otherwise they're going to think you're just sitting on your behind and doing nothing. But if it appears to be a serious missing person case and you've spent two or three days and you're still no further in trying to locate the missing person, you have to consider something that we've set up in my former police force, and that's called like a family liaison officer, where if they want to talk to the police, they don't have to call the general number and be connected like three times and then get to talk to the wrong person. They have one or sometimes two police officers who are their points of contact. They have direct phone numbers. And if there's any information, any development, any question, these are the officers that they talk to, which also allows us to grow a certain amount of confidence between both sides. It's important at this point to explain how someone becomes a family liaison officer. Carla describes it as a combination of character and training. You need to have some social skills, which they'll look at how you're functioning. But then, yeah, there is training in order to learn how to do with that. But it is also with the officer, a personal feeling of, I'm interested in missing person cases. I feel the need to help families in their times of stress and need and questions about what happened. And so for a lot of those who do become family liaison officers, it is like a natural thing because they feel the desire without anybody telling them to contact the family and ask how it's going, even if there's nothing new to report, just to stay in touch with people. Who do you see as the main people that should be part of a team when it comes to an investigation? You said a liaison officer. That makes sense, especially if a case goes on for longer than a day or two. And then you've mentioned other potential resources. But as the investigation, the core team, what does that look like? A team would, would be very much customized as to what the ongoing scenario is. Let me give you an example. If financial issues might be at play here in the disappearance of this person, you may want to get a detective who has skills in that area and contacts in that area because you may have to contact a bank or other financial institution to get difficult questions answered about some financial activities. If, for instance, if you're moving to the computer and the phone area, which is highly technical, obviously not every detective can do that. It's even dangerous to have it done by people that don't know everything about it. So you need the experts in every single territory, which is relevant for that particular investigation. If forensic investigation and evidence, for instance, when it comes to making sure that if somebody's been missing for some time that you can identify them if you already assume that they may not be alive anymore, but they're out there in conditions which will like affect the body, deteriorate the body fairly quickly, you may have to use every possible option to identify them at the point in time that you locate the remains. Most police organizations have those experts, and if they don't have them readily available because they're a small organization, there's always a larger body of law enforcement around that will be willing to lend you a hand and provide that expertise to you. If you have a 
a child going missing, obviously one of the options, because there's many others, but one of the options is that somebody had, let's call it in an understatement, an unhealthy interest in the child. And if that is even a remote possibility, as the investigator, you will have to take into consideration that somebody from the area that the child went missing from could be behind that scenario, could be the instigator of this scenario. And obviously, then you may want to look at detectives that have experience in these kind of cases in which children are victimized. So it's clear that there are so many human elements to consider in any investigation, which mean different resources and solutions are needed in every case. Carlo points out that the sheer number of missing person reports also add to the level of workload. It wouldn't be so bad to have to go through this whole process of trying to establish what happened if you had two missing person cases every year. But recent numbers show that in the UK, every single day, 400 adult people are reported missing, which is like an incredible amount of work for police officers to take care of because 400 times a day they need to establish some idea of, okay, this person is apparently missing. What is going on? What is the risk? What do we need to do and get organized in trying to find this person? You still have to work from the assumption that every case is different and you'll do the basic things to find out what these differences are, what the particular situation for this person is. And that's what's making it complicated. And that also tells you that it would be very wrong to use some kind of standard approach on any of these hundreds of thousands of cases that most police forces have every year. Collecting some of the information that you actually need cannot be done by, let's call them outsiders, people who are not police officers, because of course there's laws on privacy and protection of data and so on and so on and so on. And you may even need a prosecutor or a judge, depending on what country you're in, in order to obtain certain information. As an example, if we want to find out where somebody is and we know that they have a phone with them, the public will think, oh, that's easy. The police can see where the phone is. Well, it doesn't work that way. We're not allowed to do that without first get the permission of a prosecutor. And that may be different in other countries, but those are some of the issues we, we deal with. For the actual search, police have a lot of resources to do the actual search. But in many countries, there's volunteer organizations, for instance, that have trained rescue dogs. Carlo also briefly explained how police collaborate with the media in certain cases. The media will pick up on some missing person cases more than others. But if they do, sometimes the effect is overwhelming. And it can also be positive because a lot of attention on the, the fact that somebody's missing can help locate them. Police will sometimes use, and use is maybe not the right word, but incorporate the media in the investigation because the media can ask the public for information. We can ourselves give out information on where the missing person was last seen or the car that he or she is using in order to locate that. Again, it's kind of a, a somewhat tricky kind of communication in which obviously there needs to be a sense of cooperation and mutual respect. When do you close a case from a police perspective? Actually, as long as the missing person has not been found, you shouldn't 
theoretically call it closing the case. If somebody's missing, as long as they have not been found, the case should remain open, although that's just a technical term. If you look at homicide cases that are not solved after a number of years, depending on what police force you're dealing with, that case will become what they call a cold case, which means that other detectives will review the case material, will look at the case once again, will look for options that there might still be. But that too is an ongoing process. There should not be a time and place where we say, okay, we give up. Because what we are showing now, and, and that's being helped by a lot of technical possibilities that we have nowadays, we are able to locate people that have gone missing 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I think it's important to know that if you're the person left behind by the missing person, the idea of having to hear from a police source, okay, well, we've closed the investigation, which is basically the same as we're not looking anymore. I mean, if you want to deal another blow to somebody like that, it's, it should be telling them that. So again, in different countries, this may be arranged in different ways, but in the Netherlands, we have made the decision that yes, we do investigate homicides as cold cases or sexual assault cases as cold cases, but missing person cases also become cold cases. Thank you so much, Carlo, for joining us today to share your expertise on missing person investigations. I was very happy to be a part of this, and I hope that many more successful podcasts will be in your future. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. Next time, we'll be joined by Dr. Sarah Wayland and Lauren O'Keefe to discuss the impact of going missing on families and friends. If you'd like to find out more about our work and any resources we mentioned in the show, you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. But if you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. I'm Caroline Humer. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green. Thanks for listening to Missing Persons Uncovered. We'll speak again next time. This episode was brought to you by the University of Portsmouth. You can find out more about how their research is changing our world for the better and supporting projects like this at port.ac.uk slash research.